So uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 18, 24 through chapter 19, verse 10. That's the entire text that we're going to look at. But I wanted to start by reminding you, you know, 33 years ago, a group of Christians in Tempe and Chandler came together because they had a vision to see a church planted, started in this community. Uh, it was a new community where a lot of people living really from this spot further west, it was newly developed. They knew that tens of thousands of people would move into this area. They would live here. They would work here. They would raise their families in this area. And those people would need to know the gospel. And so this group of people began to meet and pray together, study the scriptures together. And they made a covenant with each other to do all that they could to unleash the gospel into this area called the Awatuki Foothills. And under God, they are the reason we're here this morning. I mean, we know that it's God who bears spiritual fruit and makes that possible, but the Lord used all those people to see that the church was planted here. In this text, we see the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. But years earlier, Jesus confronted Paul, who was then Saul, on the road to Damascus, and he commissioned him. He said, you're going to be my chosen instrument, not only to the Gentiles, but to kings and even to the children of Israel. So he was calling him out. And from that moment on, Paul was really consumed with that vision, with that dream to see the name of Jesus go public, to spread throughout the world. After two years of being in Ephesus, I want you to see in this text, look at verse 10 of chapter 19. I want you to see here how Luke summarizes what's taken place in that ministry in just those two years. So chapter 19, verse 10. Luke summarizes it this way. This continued for two years, and here's that, that phrase, so that. This happened for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's pretty amazing. We're going to see a map in a few moments, but how does that happen, that all of the people in Asia, all of Asia had heard the word of the Lord? How does that take place? The title of the message today is Make Disciples and Teach Them. Because that's what we see happening here. That's how you get those kinds of results. Disciples are made and disciples are taught and the gospel continues to move forward. That's how foothills got here. And that's the work of the church until Jesus returns to make disciples and to teach them. And as we walk through the text, I want us to see four elements of disciple making that God has given to us here in this passage, I think, that we can see going on. First of all, there's mentoring disciple making happening. We see nurturing disciple making taking place. We see clarifying disciple making going on through Paul particularly, and then multiplying disciple making. So that'll be the structure that we hang our, our message on this morning, all right? So let's, let's dive into this text here, beginning in chapter 18, verse 24. So you'll remember, just for a moment's worth of context, that last week Paul has left the city of Corinth and he's returned home to Syrian Antioch. He had Aquila and Priscilla with him. He's stopped in Ephesus and he's departed from there, but he's left them in the city. And so here we go. We're going to meet a new person now in the, in the narrative. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And so here's a Jewish man who's from Egypt, uh, from Alexandria, a place of great learning, and he's come to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd instructed, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him 
and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And so again, we, we know Aquila and Priscilla, they were tent makers in Corinth with Paul. Now they're in Ephesus and they meet this gentleman named Apollos. And with Apollos, these two, this husband and wife team, they function like mentoring disciple makers with Apollos. And we're gonna, we see that in the, in the text. Before we get into all of it, let's look at the map. Baron gave us a map that's more colorful than the, than the past, right? And so we, we see that red line. You see the, the, the purple area called Cilicia on the map. And you see that red line going through it, moving west, northwest, across all of that inland area. That's the way Paul is going on the third missionary journey. He's strengthening all of those churches that they started in Galatia and Phrygia. And so when you read the New Testament letter to the Galatians, it's talking about people who lived in those areas, who had churches begun among them in those areas. And now Paul is headed towards the coast. It's hard to see it there, but Ephesus is there along the coast of the Aegean Sea. That's where he's, he's going. Now, Paul is on that third missionary journey. He's doing all of those things. But now we come to Ephesus, right? What do we know about Ephesus as a city? It was a big city. So we left Corinth. That was a big city. Ephesus is larger, up to a half million people living in the city of Ephesus. That's huge for those days, right? Uh, it's a busy seaport city. But it's also a center for religion. The, the uh, temple to the goddess uh, Artemis was there. And the Romans referred to her as Diana. And, and many people say that, that that temple built to her was one of the wonders of the world at the time. I don't know if anybody here has ever been to Ephesus. If you've been on a Holy Land trip, sometimes it's, it's a curious thing to stop in Ephesus if you're on your way to do that. But we've got a couple of pictures on some slides to kind of show you right now, if you were to go there, you could walk down that street. In Ephesus, it's a, it's a very wide street. It's paved with all of those stones. You can imagine all the trouble and time that it took to do all of that. But Ephesus was a big city, and it was ornate in a lot of ways. And then this street leads you to this theater and thousands of people could cram into that theater. This was the Ephesus that Paul found himself in, that Aquila and Priscilla worked in, that Apollos was in. I wish we had slides of maybe a synagogue there and that kind of thing, but Ephesus is one of those ancient places in the world where the ruins are actually pretty well preserved. So if you ever have a chance to go there, then I would encourage you to do that. That's Ephesus. And in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla are functioning like mentoring disciple makers with Apollos. When you read this description of Apollos, you might think, what does this guy have to learn? Right? He's well-educated. He's well-spoken. He's been instructed in the ways of the Lord. The word actually is catechized. Some of you have been through catechism maybe when you were a child. You know what that is? It's just instruction in the way of the Lord. That's, that's what he's been through. And, but Luke says there's, there's something not quite all together there. Even though he's accurately teaching about Jesus when he does teach, he, he kind of throws in this odd term, in this, this phrase, though he only knew the baptism of John. And so it makes us pause and consider, okay, well, what, what seems to be missing? Because obviously something was up. Aquila and Priscilla come alongside of him, and they take him, and they teach him more accurately the way of the Lord. And so you feel the tension, right? Here's Apollos, well-educated, well-spoken, teaching accurately about Jesus, and then Aquila and Priscilla come along, and they teach him the way of the Lord more accurately. So there's a tension there. He doesn't have all the blanks filled in for one reason or another. We can speculate as to what was missing or what wasn't 
quite as accurate as it needed to be, most people will go back to say, well, because Luke dropped that reference into John's baptism, that perhaps that was it, that Apollos didn't clearly communicate or completely understand Christian baptism as opposed to John's baptism. And that may be true. He may have thought, okay, well, John's baptism is what he had experienced and, and maybe what others experienced. He'd never gone beyond that, perhaps. That John's baptism pointed to repentance and the one who was going to come, who would be the Messiah, the Savior, and you needed to participate in that, you know, that kind of thing. But he never went on to say that Christian baptism is different. Christian baptism is a picture of being united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, being part of the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king. It's a, it's a demonstration of our faith in Christ, the one who has come. Perhaps he wasn't clear about those kinds of things. We don't know. Whatever it was, Aquila and Priscilla are mentoring him, right? In other words, they're aiming for more accuracy from Apollos. That's what it does. That's what, that's what happens when you mentor someone. You're looking to help them become more accurate in what they know and how they live or what they practice. And that's what it means to mentor another believer. When you know people around you who could grow in their understanding of the scriptures, their knowledge of the scriptures, their walk with Jesus, you can come alongside and mentor them. You may think for yourself, I, I could use some mentoring in this area or that. That's what we see happening with Aquila and Priscilla. That's what they're doing under God here with, with Apollos. If we want all the people in Ahwatukee to hear the word of the Lord, the, the way all the people in, in, in Asia heard the word of the Lord, we need people to function as mentoring disciple makers. We can all do that at one level or another. But we can all be part of that. And I think it's really interesting to me that Aquila and Priscilla did that with Apollos. And I also think it's interesting, and you might spend a lot of time on this in your foothills groups, I don't know, but here's Apollos, probably the most educated guy in the room, probably the best spoken man in the room, and yet he doesn't think that he's so educated and so smart and so skilled that he can't learn. He has a very teachable spirit, and it makes all the difference in his life going forward. So I think it's a good thing. This is when we see mentoring going on, a mentoring, disciple-making posture that all of us need to take on. Look at the next two verses, 27 and 28 of chapter 18. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, so Apollos wants to go to Corinth, basically, the brothers, that's the brothers in Ephesus, they encouraged him. They wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so Apollos goes from mentoring and being mentored to nurturing other people's faith. He's a nurturing disciple maker, and that's the way it ought to work. As people mentor you, you're enabled to go out and nurture other people's faith, and that's the way we want to see it work. And I want you to notice that Apollos isn't discouraged because he had something to learn. He didn't quit. Someone pulls him aside and says, hey, brother, I think that you could be more accurate with this or that. It didn't discourage him so much that he threw in the towel. No, he continued to want to spread the gospel. He continued to want to teach, and he leaned into that. And the brothers in Ephesus, they, they didn't get down on him, right? I mean, they supported him. They got behind him. They even wrote a letter of reference and sent it ahead so that he would be welcomed when he arrived in Corinth. And I think that's all very important. You know, when you look later in the New Testament, you go to 1 Corinthians, you see the Apostle Paul writing to that church in Corinth. Because they had all kinds of issues. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see a church that's got a lot of things happening there that are not really great. And one of those things are cliques. They kind of split into different factions, and they were all choosing up sides behind this teacher or that one. 
well, we're of Jesus, or we're of Apollos, and we're of Paul, and, and they were really kind of breaking up. And Paul really got after them in the form of this letter. And he said, what are, what are you doing? You're acting like people who don't even know Jesus. You're acting like people who are so spiritually immature, it makes me wonder if you are even saved. And he writes to them, he says, what is then Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so Paul is really, he's daddying them a little bit, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's being a spiritual shepherd to them, and he's pointing them to the fact that any spiritual growth and any spiritual maturity, in fact, the message of the gospel came to them and got to them because God was doing it. This was God's work. And oh yes, I planted and Apollos watered. And I think what is important, at least what I see that jumps off the page to me, is that God is sovereign again. You see it throughout Acts, not only in salvation, but also in the process of discipleship. He ordains the ends and the means for all of this process. He makes it happen. And so God has chosen Apollos to go there and water the seed that Paul had previously planted. And he does that by nurturing them. We'll see that in just a moment. And so when you do that, when you go in and you nurture people's faith, you're, you're helping people move forward in their experience of Jesus, their walk with Christ, their depth of understanding of the scriptures. Certainly we know Apollos did that. But I think it's important to notice that Luke mentions the fact that Apollos helped these new believers in Corinth. How? By powerfully refuting the Jews in public. Did you see that? That's, that's how he helped them in their faith. He powerfully refuted them. He argued that Jesus is the Christ. He's the fulfillment of all those promises. We sang about that this morning in one of those hymns that we sang. In other words, I want to say this. Apollos nurtured their faith by exercising his faith. Apollos nurtured the faith of the people in Corinth by exercising his faith. I'm sure that he taught them. But notice that he tested those Jews every time he got up and taught. And many of them turned away from him. But while he was doing that, all of those new believers in Corinth were sitting by the side and they're taking notes and they're learning. They're soaking it up. And so in that sense, Apollos is nurturing their faith and he's doing that because he's exercising his own faith. He's using his gifts. And that's how all of us can nurture each other's faith. It's important to be here just on a Sunday morning to show up, not only for your own sake, not only for the sake of the name of Christ, but for one another. Uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, when we come together and we gather and we sing, we're singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. So just your participation in worship is meant to be encouraging and nurturing each other's discipleship that way. So it's important to do that, to participate, to use your gifts, to serve. That's what we see Apollos doing. That's what we see how God is using him to nurture their faith. And Luke chose to tell us that their faith was helped because they saw Apollos carrying out ministry and teaching out of the word of the, of the scriptures. And so they were learning that way. If we want all the people in Albuquerque to hear the word of the Lord, to come to faith in Christ, at least have that opportunity, then we need to be nurturing disciple makers, not only with the people in the world, but with one another. We need to be mentoring disciple makers, not just with people in the world, but also with each other. Now I want you to look at chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. All right, this is kind of the, the hairy portion of this text, right? It's, it's a little bit interesting, and so we'll spend more time here. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, saw that on the map, and he came to Ephesus. It, it sounds like, just like that, he showed up in Ephesus. It took a long time for Paul to get over there. 
But Apollos has left and Paul arrives. And look at what happens. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard of the, that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And while Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 in all. Uh, Apollos left. Paul arrives. These disciples seem to be disciples of John the Baptist. That seems to be really clear as you walk through the text. Uh, Paul decides to ask them some clarifying questions. And so in that sense, he is a clarifying disciple maker. He runs into these guys, these 12 of them, just about, and he begins to see them and interact with them. He hears them speaking. He sees them living. Whatever, I, we don't know why he started to ask them these questions, but something made him think to ask them these questions. And so he did. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We've not yet heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what were you baptized? Into John's baptism. Why does he ask those particular questions? And why does their answers matter? And why, after he hears them answer, does he say, well, John's baptism was about this, and it pointed to Jesus, and it says, upon hearing this, he baptized them into the name of Jesus. Why did those things happen? Well, I want to deal with the issue that I think is here that you may or may not be aware of when you read this, but it's, it's there nonetheless, and you may run into it. Because there are some people who look at this text, and they want to encourage us as Christians to look for, to yearn for, to pray for, to ask God for a second experience with the Spirit, to, to look for a second blessing to come into our lives. And so, yes, you've come to faith in Christ, but you need something more. Your Christian life is good, and yes, you're going to go to heaven, but there's so much more for you to experience, and you need the second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit to come in your life to really change you, to bring you to a greater depth of knowledge of Christ and a greater experience of walking with Christ. And so you can have these gifts that you see displayed here when the Spirit came of speaking in tongues or prophesying. And so there are people who do that. And I think, frankly, that it misses the point of the text completely, just utterly. These are not disciples of Jesus. These are not men who are already believers in Christ. They are followers of John the Baptist. There's a reason why Paul asked them, into what were you baptized? They hadn't heard of the Spirit. Or they didn't know much about the Spirit. And now he's asking, well, what, about, what were you baptized into? Why does he connect the Spirit and baptism together? Because they belong together. They belong together. The, the testimony of Acts, the normal pattern in Acts, is that a person believes in Christ, is baptized, and receives the Spirit. And that we see over and over again. But by their answers, these men demonstrate that that's not been their experience. And so Paul tells them about Jesus. Because they're kind of almost Christians, right? They're close. They know some things. But they've not yet really come to faith in Jesus. And so they did need something more. They needed the Spirit for the very first time. They needed to be born again. I think that at this point, it's, it's, it's good to know this, that what unites us in Christ, what brings us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, is not that we look to and ask one another, hey, have you been baptized with the Spirit? That's not at all it. We ask, hey, have you had the new birth? Have you come to faith in Christ? 
When did you come to know Jesus? Let me tell you how it happened in my life. This is how the Lord brought me to Christ. That's the message of the New Testament over and over again. When Paul writes to the early churches, he constantly brings people back and points them back to the time when they didn't know Christ and then when they came to know Jesus. That's the experience that he points to. And as far as further experiences are concerned, Paul constantly reminds the believers that what they ought to be looking for is growth and spiritual maturity, becoming more and more like Christ until... Not until they have some second blessing from the Spirit, but until Christ returns and finishes what he started. I want to give you just two scriptures that kind of help us with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. I chose it for that reason because it felt like it was in the context of where they were at at the time. And this is what he wrote to them. He said, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. So how many were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ? All. Not just a few but everyone, and whether Jews or Greeks, it didn't matter where you were from, slave or free, it didn't matter what your life was like, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. How do you become a Christian? By the Spirit. How, do you, how, how are you brought into Christ? By the Holy Spirit. How will we become members of the kingdom of God? By the work of the Spirit. And it's true for every person who has ever breathed since Jesus came out of the grave. It's true for all of us. It's the experience of every Christian. It's what we ought to talk to each other about. Tell me your testimony, how you came to know Jesus. It's the epic-making difference in our lives. It's the universal, unifying experience that every true believer in Christ should be able to talk about. That's what happens. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that God would send his spirit to us. He would replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh so that we would hear his voice and obey him and understand the scriptures. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Later, Paul writes to this church in Ephesus where he is currently. And look at what he says to them. In him you also, that is in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, right, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so, in other words, when you become a Christian, you instantly become the possession of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and lives inside of us. He's the guarantee. He's the earnest money that when you die or when Christ comes, you're going to inherit all that has been promised for you and me, all that's been provided for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's the Spirit that makes that happen. And so Paul is clarifying with these disciples of John the Baptist the rest of the story, if you will, what they hadn't heard he makes it clear because it's, it's clear in their experience and in their knowledge of what they have that they don't sync up with that pattern. Now, if you go back through Acts, you, you see that pattern. Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2. Let me say this, that Pentecost is a once-for-all event in the history of the church. It's like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost has never been repeated and it never will be ever again. But then you have these many kind of Pentecost, these, these snippets of time when, when the Spirit takes the gospel into a new people, where it crosses a threshold where it hadn't been before. And you see it in, in Acts 1-8 when Jesus said, right, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And each time that happens in the book of Acts, you see this uh, really amazing kind of display of the Spirit of God at work in people's lives. And it's a, it's a display meant to solidify the fact that these people are 
in Christ now. and They're part of the body of Christ. So you see it in Acts chapter 2 when those Jewish disciples are, are given the Spirit and they speak in tongues and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Did all 3,000 people speak in tongues? No. Did all 3,000 people prophesy? No. There's no record of it. Just that 120 it was the first group, Jewish disciples. And then you go to Acts chapter 8, and the Samaritans come to faith in Christ. And what happens? After they hear Philip preaching to them, Peter comes along, that Jewish chief apostle from Jerusalem, and he lays hands on all those believers, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on it, and they speak in tongues. It's kind of an amazing thing. So you see the, 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 the Spirit moving the gospel into a new group of people. In chapter 10, Peter does the same thing. He's preaching, and there with a God-fearing Gentile, Cornelius, the Spirit comes. And it's a unique moment in time, and it's apparent that the Spirit has come upon him. And then you come to Acts chapter 19, where you have these Greeks, right, all the way out, as it were, to the ends of the earth. They've heard of John the Baptist, though, and they've kind of come into line with what he believed, but they didn't have the rest of the story. They had it up through what John had pointed them to, but they needed to know about Jesus. And when they came to Christ, bam, it, it, it happened. I don't know why it didn't happen in Corinth. There were plenty of people like that probably in Corinth or in Thessalonica or in Berea, all those places where Paul had been before. I don't know why. It took, I don't know why. I just know that it happened here, and I know that it's not the normal pattern that we put ourselves into when we say, hey, how does a person come to faith in Christ, and how does the Spirit work? The point of all of this is that Paul was a clarifying disciple maker. He saw these people who looked like they might be Christian. They seemed to have a lot of apparent uh, perhaps actions and language that would make them, would make someone think that they were a Christian, but they weren't yet. They were kind of almost Christians, if you will. And, and he begins to ask them questions. And in the process of asking questions, he understands where they are and he shares Jesus with them. And the truth of the matter is, beloved, that there, there was a time in my life when I was an almost Christian, when I was very much like these guys, that I, I, had, the, I had the look. I, I, had, I could, I could kind of talk the talk, but I wasn't very good at walking the walk. I'm still not very good at that, but I, I really could talk the talk. I was kind of an apparent Christian, an almost Christian, but I needed someone to come alongside of me and share the gospel with me, and that's when Christ really opened my life. I grew up in church. It's possible for people to even be within the church. And yet, they've not yet come to faith in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we go around interrogating one another. That's not what's happening here, right? I want to be clear about that. But in the process of just having fellowship, as it were, with these men, Paul detects that something's amiss, and he starts to ask some questions about their relationship with Jesus. And in the process, he discovers these men need to know about Christ, and he asks them. So it might be true that you might run into neighbors and friends who have some church background, but as you talk to them, you can ask them questions and help them clarify what they believe, why they believe it, what has been their experience. And you may find that someone has not yet truly heard the gospel and come to faith in Jesus. Well, that was Paul, a clarifying disciple maker. And if we want everyone in Albuquerque to hear the gospel, then we need to do that. We need to be clarifying that way. Let's see what the results are, right? Here's the end of chapter, uh, the text for today, right? Verse 8. And it says, and he entered the synagogue, that is Paul. And for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. So Paul here is doing the same thing that Paul does at every city where there's a synagogue. But when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, a, a euphemism for Christianity, for following Jesus, for Jesus' followers, 
they were speaking evil of that, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Just like last week, he, it's as if he shook his garments out. He shook the dust off his feet. He said, you've had an opportunity here. I've presented to you the truth. You've rejected it. I'm moving on. And he took some of those disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. I wish I had a slide to show you the ruins of the hall of Tyrannus, but there, there aren't any. I, I scoured the place and it doesn't seem to be, be any ruins there. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So it's a really interesting passage, and we, we come back to where we started, right? How did all the people here in Asia hear the word of the Lord? How did they do that? Because Paul was primarily making disciples and teaching them. He, he was a multiplying disciple maker in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, the hall of Tyrannus it might be of interest to you. It was this place where a man named Tyrannus probably owned it. He might have been the main teacher there. He probably taught early in the mornings when it was cool. He may have come back in the evenings for an evening session when it was cooler. And Paul likely had the middle part of the day when it was hotter. People were taking siestas. And there's Paul trying to teach. And you can think about the fact that he spent hour after hour teaching there in the afternoons for two years. Paul's a beast, day after day doing this kind of ministry. And in the process, all the people, all of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. All of Asia heard the word. It's, in other words, the gospel covered that area. How is that possible if Paul's in Ephesus, in the hall of Tyrannus, teaching? Because he's multiplying himself in the lives of those people that he's teaching. He's a multiplying disciple maker. That's how it, that's how it spread. He poured himself into the disciples that he was teaching, and their lives changed. And they began to go out from there, and they went to places he would never go. They spoke to people he would never reach, and the gospel continued to flourish. For an example, we don't have any record that Paul ever went to Colossae, but we have the New Testament letter to the Colossians. How is that? Who got there? How did that church get planted there if Paul didn't do it? In the first chapter of Colossians, verses 7 and 8, he, he wrote to them. He said, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. In Colossians chapter 4, at the end of Colossians chapter 4, there's a whole list of people that served with Paul and did ministry alongside of Paul. And he makes it clear that Epaphras was one of those men, and he was kind of a key guy in a tri-city area. So there was, there was Colossae and there was Laodicea and Hierapolis. And, and we can understand from Colossians that Epaphras was probably a native son. He was probably from that area. It really wouldn't be much to speculate the idea that, that Epaphras could go from Ephesus to Colossae and back. It was about 100 miles. And that would have been a well-worn route because Ephesus was the seaport. That was the city where business was done for the rest of that region. If you were selling goods, you needed to get them to Ephesus because that's where the money was. And so it makes sense that there would have been a lot of traffic and that Epaphras could have done that easily. I know that it's speculative, but I think that Epaphras traveled to places Paul would never get to. And we see the churches starting to spring up. And it all began right there in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus, with Paul multiplying himself and the disciples that he taught. And if we want all of Awatuki to hear the word of the Lord, then we need to remember that on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 1045, this, this event, this gathering, isn't meant to begin and end with us. It's meant to be multiplied out to others. Your gathering with your Foothills group isn't meant to begin and end with you or with your D group. It's not meant to begin and end with you. It's meant to be multiplied through you. Perhaps one of the best ways to just think about applying this 
is to consider this, that anytime you hear a sermon from whomever, anytime you hear a message, or anytime you're in your foothills group and you're wrestling with scripture and you're coming to application for it, or you're doing it with your D group, or even one-on-one, and the Lord teaches you something, it would be a wise thing to think, hey, how can I obey this truth, but also who can I share this with? Who might need it? Lord, who would you help me share this with? And begin to be a disciple maker just that way. Out of the scriptures, teaching what you've learned. And it's not about putting yourself on a pedestal or thinking that you're better than other people. But it's about coming alongside of folks and saying, man, I've been reading the scriptures and I feel like God is teaching me this. Have you ever seen this? Do you have anything to say about it? You know, and, and share what you've learned with others. And in that way, you can begin to multiply what God is doing because this is God's work and he's done it, and he is doing it. You can clarify the gospel with others, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, as you ask questions the way we see Paul doing here. You can nurture others in their faith simply by participating, showing up, acting out your own faith, exercising your faith, using your gifts and abilities. And from time to time, you might need a mentor. Just ask someone, hey, I would really like to grow in my knowledge of this. Can you teach me? Or you know someone and they've had questions, and you've thought, man, I, I, I might could help them answer that question, but you don't want to presume or whatever. Well, don't worry about presuming. Just move in and say, hey, let me, let's try to study this together. Would you like that approach better? Maybe that might make it easier for you, but you can mentor others and help them. We want to see the gospel touch the lives of the people in Ahwatukee, the way the folks who started this church did 33 years ago, the way we know Jesus has set up his church to do that right here. So let's pray that he'll make us disciple makers, that through the scriptures, we'll be able to pass on our faith in Christ to others. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, we thank you for the example that we see in the early church and the apostles that's before us. But Father, this morning we know that this is really about you. It's about your sovereignty, your power, your love, your mercy, compassion, and grace. Father, we thank you for Jesus who lived his life before you without any sin and who gave his life as a substitute for ourselves on the cross. He was buried and he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and death and the devil. And Father, we believe that he's ascended, he's risen, he's with you in the heavens and he will return and all things will be made new. So Father, help us as we get that gospel, that good news that eternal life is possible, that that's what's at stake, that it's important for us to teach accurately. Father, help us, help me, help everyone who stands and teaches at this desk or in any of our Foothills groups. Father, I pray for those leaders, for our D group leaders. God, give them wisdom and clarity and accuracy. Help them to be encouragers in their lives and their ministries. We want to see Jesus lifted up here, Father, in this area, in this community. We want the people around us to know him, to know the joy and the love and the purpose and the life that can only be had in him. Help us as we seek to do that, we pray in his name. Amen.